So we got something new today on the feed. We're bringing you the podcast version of The Jacobin Show with hosts Jen Pan, Ariella Thornhill, and Paul Prescott. Uh, you can find the show on YouTube and catch it live Wednesdays at 6 p.m. or find the audio version here afterwards. But first, a quick message for our Jacobin Radio listeners. If you can, please, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, give Jacobin Radio a review. Those ratings really do help keep us up in the charts. My name is Connor, a new audio editor at the magazine. Thanks for listening. And now, The Jacobin Show. everyone. Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, and I'm here today with Ariella Thornhill. Ariella, what's up? A lot after last week's events. I'm a little bit um, relieved that I wasn't hosting. You and Paul did a a really great job because that story as it developed was unbelievable, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more to say on it as things carry forward. Yeah, there are actually like quite a few continuities between what happened then and what we're going to talk about on this episode, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, on that note, um, next week, of course, is Inauguration Day, and that means that Joe Biden is getting sworn in. However, it's also the 20th anniversary of George W. Bush losing the popular vote in 2000 and taking office in January of 2001. So this is, you know, our very special W episode. Um, (laughs) We are going to have Felix Biederman on in a little bit. Uh, He's going to kind of cover the Iraq war, the war on terror. Obviously, that was a massive cornerstone of the Bush administration. Um, But even when we're looking at just domestic policy, like Ariella, you and I were talking before and we were overwhelmed. Like there's so much about the Bush years. Um, We we can't possibly cover everything. Um, Obviously, the kind of greatest hits are, you know, the the 2000 election, uh, Bush v. Gore Supreme Court case. Um, In Bush's second term, there's, of course, his disastrous response to Hurricane Katrina, um, 9-11 and the war on Afghanistan. I mean, the list really goes on, right? Um, And I think something that I wanted to mention is that you and I were both teenagers during the Bush years. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was reminded of this recently because a friend sent me this amazing tweet, (laughs) which reads, over 30s of Twitter, was your teenage life surrounded with many world events? Was the world this crazy back then? And I can think that, you know, I I, I think both of us can unequivocally say yes. But my question for you is like, what is the thing that you most remember about the Bush years? Um, I actually think there's two things and, and they're like the micro scale and the macro scale. The micro scale was the area that I grew up in was intensely conservative um, politically and religiously. And I was kind of, I was shocked, honestly, even having experienced a lot of racism there by the anti-Muslim sentiment that was just beyond cruel. You know, there was a ply a plywood sign in my town that had been spray painted to say, nuke the towel heads. Um, and it was just awful. It was this like kind of bloodlust and Right after 9-11, actually, they made us watch the footage over and over again in school. Every morning, we had to watch the footage of the planes. But there was also this intense political development that came out of that, because I think I was kind of like 
surprise, surprise, people would be like, why are you talking about all these negative things all the time? You just hate fun. And I would be talking about like poverty, (laughs) rural poverty. Um, But it was galvanizing for so many other students, I think, who saw this kind of unequivocal corruption and rot and started to connect that to other things, particularly because the town that I grew up in was very pro-military, but then you watched kids get recruited and come back and struggle through post-traumatic stress disorder and through economic instability and lack of resources. And I think that you saw in both the Trump and Bernie campaign, they seized on these sentiments to different ends and main split for both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was no surprise to me at all. You know, Trump Mm -hmm. said, I'm going to end the war. Bernie said, also, we need to stop these endless wars, but we need to invest at home. Those messages resonated with an entire generation of people who watched their political reality degrade in real time and then got roped into its violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, How about I you, Jen? <laughs> um, well, like you, uh, during the Bush years, you know, I was living in a very in a deep red state in a very conservative town, and um, that's that's really crazy, actually, that your school like played the footage of nine eleven over and over. Like I, I was going to say, so at my school um, after nine eleven, they didn't play the footage over and over, but what they did was come on the loudspeaker every morning, right after the Pledge of Allegiance, of course, to talk about how we needed to go to war immediately. And um, I I don't know if something like that would happen today, you know? I mean, theoretically it could, but um, just in retrospect, that was a really crazy, like, obviously extremely political um, mm-hmm. uh, move on the part of a supposedly public school. So that, that was kind of the, you know, context um, right after 9-11. Yeah, what did the students th- make of that? I mean, what were you supposed to do? <laughs> So this was another question I had for you. Like, did you did you kind of come of age politically or like, did you start developing sort of political and like left opinions? Because in, you know, in Idaho, um, kids like students were also beating the drum for war, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, had a few friends who were like, I don't know, like they they seized on the anti-war movement early. So I kind of cut my teeth with them. um, Mm -hmm. And and that like that became something that I was really invested in, albeit as a teenager, you know, was pretty uninformed and just kind of blundering along. So in no way was I a seasoned activist or anything like that. Um, but that was one context in which I started thinking about politics. So was it the same for you? Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, yeah. I was raised by a very political dad, um, more in the black radical slash conspiracy tradition of that. So I wouldn't say like, I am. So he was like Bush mid 9 11. It was like, you know, why are the black beans in the ethnic food aisle? You know, that kind of. (laughs) But I get that. 60s. If I was born in the 50s, I absolutely think I would have been like arm every person of color kind of Mm -hmm. politics too. However, growing up in Maine, it's like I didn't see a lot of political solidarity, especially around those ideas that I got from him. Like, um, I understood the racial antipathy he had um, having grown up in the South during Jim Crow, but I never kind of connected politically to people, I think until this moment. And Mm -hmm. I remember this kid, we were never close, but he wore like a, 
I think he wore a, a shirt that said Bush stole the election or something like that. And they threatened him with suspension. Oh, and I was yeah. like, usually I'm the one getting kicked out of class for saying <laughs> like anti-patriotic things. And a new like, friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my friends and I definitely like, you know, watch the Daily Show to get updates and be like, oh, what's actually going on? I think it kind of gave rise to this like cynicism around the media and politics mm -hmm. that you know, that's apolitical, to be honest. Trump can use that. Bernie can use that. You know, Chavo yeah. can use that. We right. can use that. But it definitely started to make me think, like, what what's at stake in forming a movement and, and like, watching the kind of disintegration of my political feelings, anti-war feelings, and the anti-war mm -hmm. movement in general branch out. We, we see Occupy coming from this, but we also see, like, the... March on Washington for reasonable. I forgot. What this yeah, was the, the John Stewart thing. It was yeah. like for decency or sanity. Yeah, sanity. sanity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and these kind of like affective gestural political moments. Right. Um. So yeah, I think like seeing that actually made me develop even more because I started to try to, um, figure out what what actual levers there were, what actual options there were to trying to force political change or change my part political participation mm -hmm. versus like the albeit um, comforting <laughs> sarcasm of like the late night crowd or like yeah, yeah. snarky kind of teen oriented political commentary. Um now I think they've been married together. I mean, I can't I can't go too far into that without bringing Felix in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll save that for Felix because I feel like he has like things to say about that too. Yeah, absolutely. I also yeah. thought it was an interesting moment for racial justice when when Kanye and who Lord, we should do a how has Kanye changed show. <laughs> when Kanye said George Bush doesn't care about black people after Katrina, mm -hmm. and there's this whole debate around, you know, um the just abysmal response that left thousands of people homeless. They mm -hmm. restructured the city for the rich mm -hmm. after driving people out. They didn't invest in rebuilding public housing. Right. But Extreme were, privatization. Yeah. yeah. It's real substantive debates about yeah. what resources were being denied to Black people, what resources were being denied to the poor, mm -hmm. how municipal funding played into that, the way that... Um, development in cities played into that. And that was a really interesting moment that I think kind of grounded some of my political thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think the other thing that stands out to me about the Bush years, um, well, this isn't really about the Bush years proper, but the it, the amnesia, right? Like ever since Trump has taken office, basically uh, the mainstream media has completely forgotten about the Bush years or has even tried to rehabilitate Bush. And again, I want to save this uh, for when we bring on Felix, because I know that he has thoughts about this as well. Um, so everybody stay tuned for that. Um, but I think we should dive into some of the domestic policy um, because we both have things to say about, uh, I guess what I'm calling like some of Bush's sleeper hits during his mm -hmm. time in office. Um, again, there's so much the that he did. The besides, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much that he did that like literally each one of these things could be its own episode, if not its own series. Um, but, but what I'm going to talk about now is his tax cuts, which I think is actually something that probably a lot of people remember. So, like I said, um, with Bush, uh, when he took office, um, 
one of his signature pieces of legislation was his program of tax cuts. So these took place in 2001 and 2003. Um, of course, at the time, Bush and Republican lawmakers promised that these cuts would stimulate the economy and, quote, pay for themselves. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, there was a report that came out a few years ago from the Cong Congressional Research Service uh, that actually found that GDP in the U.S. fell dramatically in the wake of the Bush tax cuts. Uh, so if you can see from this chart, um, obviously the economy after the tax cuts, not doing that well. So the report uh, is based on a study looking at economic trends over a period of like 65 years. Um, and they found that there's no evidence whatsoever that tax cuts, A, create more jobs or B, help the economy, which, of course, is always what the Republicans are claiming. But what did actually happen as a result of the Bush tax cuts? Uh, for one thing, economic inequality went way up. The top 1% of households got even richer and increased their after-tax income by more than 5% each year. On average, households in the top 1% received a Bush tax cut of more than half a million dollars. Uh, and I should mention, you know, taxes did decrease slightly for middle class households as well. Um, but obviously, as the chart we just looked at shows, the lion's share went to the top income earners. So in other words, while the rich were getting richer during Bush's time in office, literally no one else was. In fact, median wages for workers with a high school diploma decreased by almost 2%. The poverty rate also rose steadily over Bush's two terms. Now, while all of this is going on, Bush is also running up this massive deficit, right? So he he came into office with an unprecedented budget surplus. Um, of course, his tax cuts basically annihilate that immediately um, and ultimately end up adding around $1.8 trillion to the deficit. Now, Republicans, of course, care very, very deeply about the deficit. So what did they do? Well, in early 2006, Bush signed into law the Deficit Reduction Act. Uh, like its name suggests, this is a measure designed to curb the ballooning deficit. Of course, instead of doing that by reversing Bush's earlier tax cuts, the thing that caused the deficit, Republicans, unsurprisingly, chose to address the deficit by tightening the belt on social services. Uh, so this piece of legislation reduced spending on programs including Medicaid, Medicare and Social Security. And um, a kind of lesser known component of this bill is that it also reauthorized welfare reform. So welfare reform, of course, is begun by Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Um, but when Bush takes office, he worked with Republicans not just to reauthorize welfare reform, um, but also to impose even stricter work requirements on welfare recipients. Um, and he also started funneling money toward things like marriage initiatives and faith-based charities as these new solutions to poverty. So I want to pause for a second on um, the marriage initiatives because they're like a little bit crazy. Uh, basically, what happened is the Bush administration dumped millions of dollars into these, quote, marriage education programs, um, which were basically like relationship counseling courses designed to teach poor people like how to stay in healthy relationships, how to raise stable families. Um, because, you know, the thinking or like the argument from conservatives at the time was that if people stayed married and, you know, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and learned some personal responsibility, uh, they wouldn't be poor anymore and they could get off the dole. 
Now, big surprise, uh, this didn't work at all. A few years later, the Department of Health and Human Services conducted a study and they found that these relationship counseling courses for poor people not only did not reduce poverty, um, but didn't really improve people's relationships. So I want to read a quote from a Mother Jones story uh, on this. They write, researchers reported that the program had produced precisely zero impact on the quality of the couple's relationships, rates of domestic violence, or the involvement of fathers with their children. In fact, couples in the eight pilot programs around the country actually broke up more frequently than those in a control group who didn't get the relationship program. The program also prompted a drop in the involvement of fathers and the percentage who provided financial support. Um, So again, millions of dollars squandered. This program not surprisingly, doesn't work at all. Um, And, you know, I think this program, along with um, the faith-based charities that Bush promoted over more government aid, um, together kind of make up the the foundation of Bush's philosophy of, quote, compassionate conservatism. So this is, of course, this notoriously ambiguous concept uh, that Republicans like to invoke when they want to sound slightly less draconian. Uh, Really, as we know, it's just a vague way of saying to working people, you're really on your own, but maybe there's a church somewhere that can help you. So um, I guess all of that said, though, I I think in many ways, one of the most significant things about uh, Bush's domestic economic policy was that it was really just one point on a long line of bipartisan austerity measures. So as I mentioned before, it was Clinton who famously enacted welfare reform in the 90s. Um, This is a program that uh, essentially ends cash assistance and moves the country to a system of workfare. We now know, thanks to decades of research, that workfare is extremely punitive. It doesn't actually help people get jobs. It really just throws people into deeper poverty. So on the subject of work requirements, um, Bush, Bush didn't invent them by any stretch of the imagination. He really just doubled down on them. And, you know, even the marriage initiative stuff and the faith based charities like that sounds like, you know, really like hardline conservatism. And it is. Um, but these programs actually came out of clauses in the original welfare reform bill. So they were, again, started by Clinton. And, um, you know, I think this kind of culture of poverty mentality, which says that, you know, people get trapped in destitution because of the way they behave or like what their family looks like. Um, you can really trace this all the way back to the 1960s to liberals like Daniel Moynihan, right? So again, you know, just to reiterate, I really think that the Bush era programs um, were not in in many ways a radical departure from what came before, but rather an instance where a Republican was able to take advantage of um, some precedents that had been set in decades earlier and further entrench austerity. And, you know, just to kind of underscore the way that these measures span both Democratic and Republican administrations, um, I want to return to Bush's tax cuts. So some of you might remember that in 2008, Barack Obama ran on a pledge to undo the Bush tax cuts. However, once Obama took office, that promise went out the window. On your taxes or if you've been laid off, your jobless benefits with the deal President Obama struck with Republicans on both and the backlash to it inside his own party. Mr. Obama agreeing to extend Bush-era tax cuts for all Americans, even the wealthiest, which he vowed in the campaign not to. In return, getting a payroll tax cut and 13 more months of jobless benefits, both helping the working and middle class. The president tonight signaling he was reluctantly trading one pillar of his campaign, the one on taxes, to preserve another 
his pledge to get beyond partisan squabbling. I know there's some people in my own party and in the other party who would rather prolong this battle, even if we can't reach a compromise. But I'm not willing to let working families across this country become collateral damage for political warfare here in Washington. And I'm not willing to let our economy slip backwards, just as we're pulling ourselves out of this devastating recession. So what happens? In 2010, Congress, of course, passes the bill with large majorities of both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate supporting it. Uh, This was in part thanks to Joe Biden, uh, VP at the time, of course, who worked tirelessly to round up the Democratic votes. Uh, In the end, the bill was seen as this, you know, real triumph of the Obama administration. The Washington Post called the deal, quote, the most significant tax bill in nearly a decade and said that it spoke to, quote, the resilience of the occupant of the Oval Office. So, you know, in that sense, maybe it shouldn't be that much of a surprise that these days the Obamas and the Bushes seem to get along famously. So I think I'm going to wrap up there, but I do want to quickly mention that in 2010, there was some opposition to extending the tax cuts, and one senator in particular spoke for over eight hours in an attempt to filibuster the bill. Here is a clip from that session. Our Republicans want, for Republican colleagues, want huge tax breaks for the richest people in this country, but the reality is is that the top 1% already today owns more wealth than the bottom 90%. How much more do they want? When is enough enough? You want it all? We already have millions of families today that have zero wealth. They own less, they owe more than they own. Millions of families have zero, below zero wealth. We are living in a situation where the top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 90%. Top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 90%. And Mr. President, that is simply unacceptable. So, um, you know, I just wanted to play that clip. By the way, you can watch all eight and a half hours of the filibuster if you want on YouTube. Um, You can also do what I did and just kind of fast forward to the end uh, where you can see that Bernie is like still at peak fighting game. He's on his feet. He's still yelling. Um, It's pretty amazing. Um, But I, I really just bring up that clip because, you know, I think Bernie gets a lot of flack for kind of saying the same things over and over. And The reason that he does that is because the Democrats and the Republicans keep doing the same thing over and over. Um, So I think, you know, just on that note, um, I will wrap up and turn it over to Ariella, who actually has a personal anecdote about some of these marriage initiatives from the Bush era. Oh, Ariella, you're muted. All right, there we go. Um, yeah, like we said, like you said, uh, these are kind of a Clinton era welfare reform right in and, and Bush expanded that program. When I was pregnant, um, I was on Medicaid and I was encouraged to join in a program at the provider that I was seeing for my care that they didn't really tell me they were like, oh, you get extra vouchers to like babies are us every time you go. And They just like talk to you about your experience and stuff. And I was like, oh, that can't be so bad. It was an aggressive, horrible woman who basically shamed me every single time I went in there for not being married to my partner. 
She was like, you need to get your mother to come live with you. If he's not going to be with you because you have a baby together, he'll never be with you. It was terrible. I also heard her um, in a session before me talking to a woman who lived separately from her partner. I think they were married. And she was like, it'll never survive. It was incredibly regressive and terrible. It was nice for me. Um, the final session we had together, my partner got to go with me to meet her and he wasn't allowed in the other ones. I don't really know why. Um, he had been researching like a, a cross country comparative study for his PhD program on like family outcomes based off of social welfare systems. And it was just wonderful to see them talking together. <laughs> she was like, do you know the statistics about single mothers? And he was like, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Like, I know them for Sweden as well. <laughs> yeah, he was like, let's look at Iceland. <laughs> yeah. um, by the way, everybody, Ariella is married now. So clearly yeah. the programs worked, right? It, <laughs> I actually kidding. proposed to him after I saw him tear <laughs> this woman apart. I was like, you know what? I'm rethinking Good my idea. stance. <laughs> yeah, so they do work. I actually do want to say there's a great book about these programs if you want more information about them. Um, there's an ethnography of one program where the women who are the social workers and therapists who are initiating it kind of deviate pretty wildly from its mandate, but just take the federal money. And they've been really successful because they coach people in safe breakups. They help connect people to care. They help connect people to other um, single parents or parents who are working and struggling. And the book is called Social Poverty. It's by Sarah Halpern Meekin. I want to have her on the show. But it's a great example of how, you know, a, what would be a socialist approach to helping people through what is a difficult moment, mm -hmm. being pregnant, having a new baby, adopting a child, all of these things are hard and having the kind of robust social networks that that specific program created was mm -hmm. very helpful for these couples. Mm -hmm. It was also helpful that they didn't encourage people to be married. And when a relationship was problematic, they said, here's a safe way to work through your feelings and break up. Here are techniques to cope mm -hmm. with your emotions, even if you're, you know, living six to a house and you don't have a lot right. of personal space. Right. So I we'll get a to lot that of the Nordic show. states. I feel like a lot of the Nordic states also have programs like that, mm -hmm. paired, of course, with a very robust like social safety net and yeah. like support for parents and like kids in early infancy. And um, I, I, is it Finland that that has the baby box that they send mm -hmm. all? parents the box turns into a crib and there's like little like toys and clothes that come come with it so the flip side is they blackmail you by talking to an angry woman who shames you <laughs> into getting married and then you get the box right <laughs> they hold the box hostage yeah um, okay so, so i know i know you have uh things to say about no child left behind and the housing yeah. crash and again like these are things that we could do entire episodes on yeah. um but for the sake of you know brevity take it away all right. So I'm going to do, you know, the some more of the Bush B sides, I guess we'll call them. And it's been really hard tangling through the rat's nest of legacies from the Bush administration. But I do want to stress the point that Bush's attack on the social safety net was a continuation of Clinton era austerity, which used bunk social science um, and spurious conclusions from social science data to justify slashing benefits in the name of encouraging personal responsibility. So it wasn't a huge deviation. Maybe the way the message was couched was slightly different. The focus on faith-based organizations was slightly different. But in terms of there being a culture war departure or a radical change between the Democrats and the Republicans, that's absolutely not the case. 
Um, and the same was true with Bush's approach to education. And it's easy to see that in two key areas where he tried reforms. Um, the first is sex education, and the second is accountability-based school testing that was written into law with the No Child Left Behind Act. With the former, he bolstered Clinton-era abstinence-only education policies that tied school funding to the use of these programs. Here's a clip of Bush's weekly radio address, forgot that he did those, from July 17, 2004. We know that random drug testing in schools is effective, and it allows us to identify kids who need help. In my most recent budget, I propose spending an additional $23 million for school drug testing. And although teen birth rates have declined, about 3 million of our teenagers contract sexually transmitted diseases each year. So we've requested a doubling of federal funding for abstinence-only education programs. We have also requested $25 million for our Character Education Initiative. This program will encourage schools to develop curricula that promote good character and help children develop a sense of responsibility to their community. Today, I urge the Congress to act on all these important initiatives. When parents, schools, and government work together, we can counter the negative influences in today's culture and send the right messages to our children. As yesterday's report shows, we're making progress in changing the culture of America from one that said, if it feels good, do it, and if you got a problem, blame somebody else, to a culture in which each of us understands we are responsible for the decisions we make. So I think there's a couple gems in there, but the most important is that Bush is couching these changes as ways of encouraging a culture of personal responsibility. And he's using that to funnel private money or public money into private institutions, the same way that Jen mentioned he had done with faith-based faith organizations. And we'll see that more a little bit later. One other staggering problem with Bush's approach to sex education, drug testing kids, and all of those other things he mentioned, is that, in fact, under Bush, STD rates for minors increased, which is no surprise when Bush fought expanding Medicaid and providing comprehensive sex education, two things that are proven to prevent unwanted pregnancy and the transmission of STDs. In fact, abstinence-only programs contained a staggering amount of outright lies, including saying that abortions caused an increased risk of development mental issues for subsequent pregnancies, that using condoms resulted in pregnancy one out of seven times with no statistical evidence attached to this, and this gem that women, quote, gauge their happiness and judge their success on their relationships while men's happiness and success hinges on their accomplishments, which I suppose is a way of raising responsible kids who take their own lives under their control, um, <laughs> but not for the women. The women just have to focus on their relationships. With no child left behind, the Bush administration also cloaked its efforts to break the teachers' unions and deprofessionalize the job as an attempt to improve the lot of Black, Brown, and impoverished kids and teach social responsibility. This meant directly tying school funding to test results, which took autonomy away from teachers and had disastrous results for their students. I think that No Child Left Behind created a, a totally utopian, unrealistic expectation that by 2014, 100% of all children would be proficient and that schools that were not able to meet an unrealistic goal would be punished. So it created a very punitive uh, language around schooling that said that if, if you don't meet this utopian goal, your school will be closed, your teachers will be fired, everybody involved in the process is somehow tainted. 
and it has created a tremendous momentum for privatizing public education. So I think that all in all we see, uh, I think, a danger right to the heart of, of public education as something that we should be improving and not destroying. No Child Left Behind's accountability system also relied on a school choice model where a faulty school could close and new better schools would take its place. Families could leave failing schools and use vouchers to attend more successful places, usually in the form of private or charter schools. This created a direct transfer of public funds from public institutions into private schools or charter schools. And it created a two-tier system of unionized public school teachers and non-union private and charter school teachers. Like Jen said, there's a lot to get into, and we should do a show on the charter school privatization school choice model alone, which is rooted in America's white supremacist past. But it worked perfectly with Bush's faith-based approach, which saw him funneling public money to, for social welfare to faith-based nonprofits and funneling money for public schools to faith-based private schools or excellence-based charter schools. Bush's culture war was grease for the wheels of privatization, and that should not be forgotten. It wasn't just a simple bipartisan disagreement issue or cultural issue. It was a way of justifying austerity that would have horrifying ramifications for decades to come. But perhaps the most egregious moment of the Bush years, if we have to pick one that's not Hurricane Katrina or the Iraq War, was the housing crisis summarized here by former President Bush himself. Well, most economists agree that the problems we are witnessing today developed over a long period of time. For more than a decade, a massive amount of money flowed into the United States from investors abroad because our country is an attractive and secure place to do business. This large influx of money to U.S. banks and financial institutions, along with low interest rates, made it easier for Americans to get credit. These developments allowed more families to borrow money for cars and homes and college tuition, some for the first time. They allowed more entrepreneurs to get loans to start new businesses and create jobs. Unfortunately, there were also some serious negative consequences, particularly in the housing market. Easy credit combined with the faulty assumption that home values would continue to rise led to excesses and bad decisions. Many mortgage lenders approve loans for borrowers without carefully examining their ability to pay. Many borrowers took out loans larger than they could afford. What Bush does not say is that his administration played a key role in pushing for deregulation and lack of oversight that led to a financial free-for-all. Bush also neglected to mention that the housing bubble was fueled in part by consumers borrowing against their homes to cover routine costs or supplement their retirement funds. While workers' wages stagnated, pensions were eroded, and benefits were more difficult to get, the housing boom was a lifeline for many Americans, and predatory lenders took advantage. Bush's deregulation left the door wide open with little or no consequences for those driving the global economic collapse. In fact, one hallmark of his administration was the push for home ownership, with mortgage subsidies Bush championed in the early days of his administration and expanded throughout his tenure. A former Bush economic advisor and the first Jon Snow to know nothing had this to say, <laughs> saying, quote, the Bush administration took a lot of pride that home ownership had reached historic highs. But what we forgot in the process was that it had to be done in the context of people being able to afford their house. 
we now realize there was a high cost. But the Bush administration consistently pushed the blame onto consumers, bailing out bad assets and big banks while millions of people lost their homes and descended into poverty, compassionate conservatism at its best. And we know what happened next. When the housing bubble burst in 2007, home prices fell 21%, and roughly 3.1 million homes were foreclosed on in the United States. The stock market plummeted by over 50%, and by the end of 2009, 8.8 million Americans had lost their jobs. And the effects lingered. From 2009 to 2012, the incomes of the bottom 99% grew by only 0.4%. But the income of the top 1% grew by a staggering 31.4% in the same time span. And it all ties back to two things. First, the government disproportionately gave more aid to banks and corporations. In 2008, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act was signed into law, creating a $700 billion program to purchase devalued assets from banks. This was called the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. Later, President Obama would direct $75 billion in funds from TARP to help reduce interest payments for homeowners. That means homeowners received around 10% of the direct relief that banks and corporations did. So there you have it, personal responsibility. The people who created a crisis got us into two wars that never seemed to end, committed dozens of financial crimes. They got off scot-free while we cleaned up the wreckage, hopefully while also marrying our partners. At least we got that. Um, So on that note, and I'm sure we'll revisit a lot of these topics in later shows, I want to bring Felix in to get to the other huge pillar of Bush's legacy. Hi, Felix. Hey. Hey, Felix. Um, So as I think uh, most of the viewers know, Felix Biederman is a co-host of Chapo Trap House. Um, Welcome, Felix, to The Jacobin Show. Hey. So um, before you came on, we were kind of going over Bush's, you know, laundry list of domestic policy hits. Um, And we also talked a little bit about how Ariella and I were teenagers during the Bush years. And I think you were, too. Right. I was um, I was 10 when he got elected. And uh, yeah, no, I let me me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Were you a teen anti-war protester? And follow-up question, did you own volumes one and two of Rock Against Bush? (laughs) I, uh, so I did not go to an anti-war protest. I was very much against the war. Um, I mostly, I mostly like uh, participated in um, online arguments about it (laughs) as opposed to the physical ones. I didn't, um, I wasn't into rock against Bush. I didn't really like that type of music. Um, I did get excited when like uh, someone I liked, like Jadakiss, would say <laughs> that Bush did 9-11, even though I didn't really agree with that at the time. Uh, I did. No, my uh, one of my most profound cultural memories from the time, besides uh, like just walking by and seeing my dad like laughing to the point of tears at my dementia, was... Um, <laughs> Uh, it was going to see Fahrenheit 9-11 with my mom. Oh, yeah, I did uh, that. Like a- after school yeah. and both of us being like, uh, yeah, wow, no, can this you believe is, it? like he's going to lose. Everyone's yeah, going to see yeah. this. Mm-hmm. He's, gonna, he's yeah. done. 
So, okay, on the subject of online arguments, I, I would like you to make an online argument now. Um, what, why, why did the U.S. invade Iraq? Like, I know that sounds massively stupid, but if you think back to 2003, um, obviously the weapons of mass destruction, uh, which was the Bush administration's rationale for war, nowhere to be found. Um, even at the time, opponents of war were saying, well, where are the weapons of mass destruction? Um, they're send in inspectors, like check with the UN, please like literally do anything except just immediately go to war. Um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but Condoleezza Rice famously said at the time, we can't let the smoking gun be a mushroom cloud. So, you know, there was no mushroom cloud. Um, but I remember at the time the left, uh, the big thing was like that the war was over oil, right? Um, or, or some people talked about like the Halliburton contracts. Uh, Dick Cheney had to Halliburton and, you know, the profit motive was was basically going to start the war and send the troops in in so that Dick Cheney and like other cronies could get richer. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to like 2013, um, 10 years after the war has started, you know, troops are still in Iraq. And I remember like kind of like doing some research like, hey, like why why did we actually go to war in Iraq? And I kind of think that the answer is still just a collective shrug. Like, I mean, for me personally, like I think I, I still like believe in kind of the profit argument. And also I think that there's an argument to be made that, you know, it was sort of this neo-imperial chess move where the Bush administration wanted to establish a strategic stronghold in that region. But of course, they completely destabilized the region and like led to the creation of ISIS. So, Felix, top top three reasons for invading Iraq. I, I mean, I think everyone had different reasons. I think if you were a military contractor, yeah, you're, you're obviously going to want more places that are invaded that no one's really looking after that you can steal billions of dollars in just cash pallets from. That yeah. you can charge, you know, $75 for a can of Sprite remix. Uh, like, that's, I mean, yeah, no, those guys are always going to want more war. Uh, they'll always want more permanent bases being built. Uh, there's the part of the security state that is just, it's like a virus. It only knows how to perpetuate itself. So if there's this place on earth that we have to occupy forever, that's forever going to be in a civil war of varying intensities. Yeah, of course they would want that. Uh, but I think, you know, why did everyone go along with it? I think it's because it just, Afghanistan wasn't very satisfying to us. We like the, the idea of fighting like an actual army and not just, you know, I've, I'm remembering one of my favorite jokes of the Bush era, probably the best joke about the Iraq war, Cat Williams' uh, insurgent joke. Tell it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to butcher it, but he basically says, you know, we're losing to a bunch of guys in sandals. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, it was, that was, I remember like Saturday Night Live and shit trying to, like recreate the feeling of world war two with Afghanistan. And you just can't do that. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, you, there's just no satisfying, like full military victory you can get over there. It's, it's not Germany, you know, Donetsk is going to go over and sign a paper and then you're done and then you rebuild and everyone gets along. Now it's going to be a war forever. Uh, and I think we knew that. And I think, the idea of uh, just like A-10 warthogs vaporizing Iraqi Republican Guard and uh, tanks rolling through Iraqi cities and just 
an unquestionable military victory was too attractive to people. I mean, I think like you can go back and look at like the team B people like Paul Wolfowitz and it's like, yeah, maybe they, you know, for them, they have, it's that Straussian view of the world where it's like, we always, we have to fight a war forever. So we don't grow soft and decadent, which, you know, uh, will happen anyway. But um, I, I would, I would have to say it's profit and it was just like an easy, you know, we needed something that we needed some place we could run over and look satisfying to people. I think there's been a, a pretty remarkable shift too, because at least where I grew up, and I think we saw this on a lot of conservative media, they're talking about like the role of the U.S. globally is to spread freedom and democracy right. and so on and so forth. And Saddam Hussein's mission in life as a governing actor was to ruin those things. It doesn't have to be in any specific way either. I remember seeing the footage of, you know, statues of him being pulled down or when he was captured playing over and over and over again. And then as the narrative soured for liberals or for Democrats, I think you started to see this fissure that we still have today where Fox News became like the Freedom Patriot Network, um, telling the truth about America's role as the police of the world. And, you know, the Democrats started digging into and questioning more of that. And you saw more of that in their media. And I wanted to see if you have any thoughts about like the enduring legacy of that um, fissure in the media. Um, yeah, I think that is around the time. I mean, the Bush years in general, um, there was a lot of that fissure around domestic policy and other things, but the Iraq war really put it front and center because Fox News was the most successful at turning it into a culture war issue where you were like a gay pussy if you didn't want to be at war forever. And I remember that segment. Was that like Tucker Carlson or something? Yeah. <laughs> With the bow tie? Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's the frustrating thing about it, though, is, yeah, Fox was awful during that time and is now. And bears a huge amount of the responsibility for selling the war to the American public, but so does fucking CNN. So does MSNBC. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, New York Times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like there, there was a lot that was actually very bipartisan, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, like the New York Times in particular, um, I think it still kind of shocks me, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, When you read it, just blanket support. But I think they started to realize when, Fox like drew a line on that terrain mm-hmm. and people started to question Bush's policies that they had to, you know, appear less supportive <laughs> when they started. Same with politicians. I mean, you watch Hillary Clinton do this in her campaign um, or, and every other person who supported it. That's a Democrat. Or unfortunately, like, yeah, Ed Markey. I mean, like, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is the real thing about the Iraq war that's painful for people to talk about. Very few people who were in power at that time walk away looking good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even people that we like in comparison to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the depressing odd, second part yeah. is that they're all still in power. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's hard to think of anyone who their life was made worse by being wrong on this. Right. I. I mean, except the people who served. I grew up with with a lot of people who really supported it and who did believe in the vision of America as being this kind of 
um, global enforcer of freedom. They believed in a kind of American um, system of democracy that created the basis for a good life for a working person. Right. And some of that was borne out by like real actual things like American industry existing at the time. Um, a lot of people where I grew up worked in the Naval Yard or worked building ships, um, worked in some way adjacent to the military, but they came back ravaged by those wars. And I think you saw that with a lot of Trump supporters as well. He ran on ending the wars. I wonder, I was wondering if you could expand on that, uh, sort of split, I guess, from the the normal Republican stance that that Trump took. Um, that was very interesting to me as someone who is, you know, alive during that time. And, uh, you know, I would definitely call myself like a uh, during the Bush years, I was a very like uh, online, like lived up kid. I had I, I had lived parents who hated the CIA. So that was the difference between hey. me and a lot of people. Now people love it. So you yeah. Are, yeah. yeah, they're back in. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, you know, that was, I mean, I've, I've, I I miss the Bush era libs. There were some cool libs during that time because like they were, the boomer libs were so interesting because they had the correct suspicions all the time. Like they hated the CIA. Mm -hmm. They distrusted the uh, national security state, all these things, but they didn't know what to do about it. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. my dad, my dad voted for Angela Davis, then Bill Clinton. All right. like, you know, he doesn't yeah, have like a yeah, <laughs> two, two black candidates. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and no, but I mean, I, this is a digression, but I was just thinking about, do you remember when Peter Fonda, he uh, <laughs> like two weeks before he died was like, what if somebody fucking molested Baron in an ice camp? And it's like, it was like, whoa, what the fuck? But it was also like. <laughs> Oh, that's what libs used to be like. Right, right. Yeah. They, yeah, but, yeah I, uh, I mean, I too think a lot about like the opposition art of the Bush era because yeah. like on one hand, um, I mean, like a while ago I was like, oh, like the, the opposition art like clearly sucked. Like, you know, Ariella and I, we were teenagers at the time. So like part of it, I think was like, reflecting on your teenage years and being a little bit embarrassed but i was recently at my parents house and i found an old copy of get your war on which is a comic from that yeah, time i period. remember that yeah. yeah it's really funny actually like yeah it's it, we have a slide up now it's like these office clip art guys who are like yeah the war on terror fucking rips and um again <laughs> there was no solution it was actually pretty nihilistic but at the same time it wasn't as sanctimonious i don't think as the opposition art is now no, or yeah, I- but uh, oh yeah, just going back to the original question. That, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, I just had a digress. I was thinking a lot about um, uh, Bush era. I was going to ask you about Peter Fonda, actually. <laughs> Cut to the chase. There, <laughs> end but, of interview. But uh, so when I watched Trump, like from you know mid twenty fifteen on, I actually when I moved to New York. Uh, that was the first Trump supporter I ever met was in June of 2015. It was the awful woman <laughs> whose uh, living room I subletted who was like, <laughs> just like, just out of nowhere would be like, there, t- there are too many people from Syria coming. Like she would say, she would like talk about, you know, a bunch of people dying. That was her here. one issue, the Syrian refugees. Yeah, yeah. She would just like, she would talk about something awful happening in Syria and then she'd be like, and you know what? They're all coming here to kill us. And I'd be like, oh, okay, lady. <laughs> what the fuck? I don't, 
okay. But she was like the perfect Trump supporter because she was like a sort of ethnic white person in Queens who feels like her lot in life has decreased since the 70s and 80s. And like no coherent foreign policy vision except for like what this guy says. And Mm. Trump's opposite or not really opposition. I mean, like he was for it at the time, but like his retroactive opposition to it, it was notable to me because I thought that it reminded me of another thing he did when he shit on John McCain, because it was one of those Mm -hmm. things where I thought the support was very hollow where John McCain might've pulled really high with people, but it's like, do people really know or like give a shit who he is enough to affect their actions if the choice is put in front of them? Just like the Iraq war, like the Iraq war, you know, it suffered a pulling hit in the last two years of Bush when no one liked him, but it was still broadly more popular with Republican polling bases than Democratic ones. And you would never think like a guy would could just attack the Iraq war, attack the Bush family, like attack everyone. uh based on this and he did because the support for it was hollow no one actually thought about it and again if all if you're doing it by culture war metrics where it's like oh yeah no i'm for it because the people who are against it are like annoying pussies and if a guy's whose whose entire thing is like i care about people's feelings less than anyone like i uh oh does this upset you good i'm gonna say it if he's against it then it's like okay well okay i don't have to support this anymore yeah, I so I, I want to go back to the culture war stuff for for a minute because I'm reminded that the Republicans, I mean, the Republicans are still insane, but back then they were super <laughs> bad. Like, yeah. do you guys remember David from Bush's speechwriter coming up with the phrase axis of evil, which is hilarious, and Bush like subsequently used it all the time. Um, the congressional Republicans, um, uh, do you guys remember uh, the like French foreign affairs minister or whatever was like, maybe maybe you guys should not go to war. And the congressional Republicans were so outraged that they were like, we're changing French fries on the congressional menu to freedom fries. Like that shit is insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, yeah, there was an insane fervor in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the Dixie Chicks were the most hated American right. for a while. Right. I mean, that was... I guess, like, I don't really want to make it a referendum on cancel culture, but I guess that's, like, <laughs> why I'm broadly against, like, just the idea of that is a, being a piece of political utility now is because I remember when it was the other way. Right. I remember totally. when it was the other way where you would get canceled for, you know, yeah, being against the war or, like, yeah, being for gay marriage. And it's, like, yeah. I don't know. It's just why I think culture war stuff is politically short-sighted yeah because culture is very it can be unrecognizable from within you know a 10-year period Mm -hmm. and you know people always say well uh, do things get better over time they don't always they don't always like 27 percent of people 18 to 29 (laughs) have a like pretty favorable opinion of QAnon. right (laughs) what do you think what do you think is going to happen when like the generation that's born now, you know, they're the majority of voting bloc in America. The generation that, you know, millennials are weepy and annoying because they were promised a future that they never got. Mm-hmm. What happens when there's the first American generation that was never promised a future and never got one? What are they, what fucking weird shit are they going to believe? I think they all get face tattoos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's um, something so I, to believe in. Right. Um, so I want to quickly talk about the anti-war movement. Um, during, you know, the during 2003, um, on the eve of the Iraq war, uh, we saw this huge uh, anti-war demonstration, demonstrations basically across the globe. Now, that said, the anti-war movement like unequivocally failed. And I don't say that as like a moral judgment on any of the people who were involved or even really as a strategic judgment. I mean, what could anybody have done at the time except protest and kind of try to repeat the success of protesting the Vietnam War? Right. Um, But but the fact remains that, you know, if if we're I mean, we're we still have troops in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Guantanamo Bay is still open. Um, the Department of Homeland Security is like still full throttle. So by those metrics, the anti-war movement like absolutely failed. And I guess I'm curious what you guys think. Like, do you think this was a death knell for the anti-war movement in the U.S. or some kind of turning point? Mm, I, I Yes and no. I mean, uh, like... I, I think it did. It was sort of like, I mean, the Vietnam protest movement kind of failed too. And I I just, I think that's the real third rail in American politics is being against the empire is uh, either whether it's isolationism or some sort of like pacifist internationalism. It is the thing that no one wants to do Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, it's the only thing we actually export anymore um i you know i i don't know what they could have done they mobilized a lot of people i mean the fucking pope came out against it i think they were gonna do it no matter what um i just i mean i think it was the uh, death knell for it in mass politics from the left for for a little bit because it was yeah so many people were mobilized like entire cities worth of people and just nothing, nothing. Right. And it, I mean, you know, you, you can, all, but you can also, yeah, look at the UK where they have a more institutional left and a more active left. They also mobilized a lot and they don't even, you know, with our country, you can look at our electoral system and be like, yeah, why would, you know, the representative from Wisconsin give a shit about people protesting in New York? But in the UK, it's, you know, they don't have that excuse. And they when like, this was just, the West was going to do this no matter what. Um, I do think it caused a lot of people to give up on the idea of being anti-war. Mm-hmm. I think that um, it was, I the most active sort of, uh, anti-war media presence I saw before Trump. Um, Not as far as organizing, but as far as like getting airtime was Republican opposition to uh, further intervention in Syria. Mm -hmm. It just like, I think, you know, consciously people like people at CNN and people at MSNBC don't really want to air left anti-war opinions. But um, I also think, the spirit was beaten out of people a lot. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. personally haven't been to an anti-war protest since, you know, the early two thousands, even though there have been multiple occasions. So I also think there was this kind of gap that Trump absolutely exploited. There was a lot of 
um, negative sentiment towards these kinds of interventions. And there were there was a lot of like on the ground suffering when people came back, mm -hmm. especially in communities where they ha are heavily recruiting from. Mm -hmm. And nobody really said much to those people. I mean, you saw Sarah Palin give nods to them or, or McCain be like, they're patriots, right? But, you know, the VA is getting underfunded. People are having trouble getting basic access. There, There's denial that they even have um, any kind of like mental, ongoing mental issues from having engaged there. Um, and yeah, I think he kind of like latched onto that and framed his isolationism if he had just said, I don't like the wars and I'm stopping them, and he didn't say, I also don't like NATO and I'm bringing industry back to America, it would be a very different type of isolationism. But he he like latched onto something that I think hit a populist nerve in a nationalist way, and it resonated with people because the suffering of the um, you know rank and file military was going unaddressed. But I also think like we saw the Bush administration just push through this unbelievable amount of executive power. Mm -hmm. And when we think about the repression of the protests that's now becoming contested even more after the attempted coup, um, I'm just air quoting that because I don't want people in the comments to be like, it wasn't a coup. Like, I'm not here to to argue semantics in any that's case. Another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, people are talking about, oh, there, there's such a difference between the way that you're cracking down. But really, we saw that during the Bush administration. I think they resurrected like a... Um, a law that was written in World War One against mm -hmm. dissent to the war. They expanded executive overreach unbelievably to the extent that Obama could bomb countries with absolutely no approval from the um, the House or the Senate. Um, yeah, I was wondering if we could go into that. Like, there is a, a kind of branch of this anti-war movement's legacy. Part of why it failed, I think, is because there was such a robust state response. And we saw that again yes. with the Black Lives Matter um, protests, like tanks in the streets, riot gear. So before I forget, do you, do you, either of you guys think that you're on some kind of Patriot Act list? Felix, you might be too, <laughs> you might be too young, but I really feel like right after 9-11, the bar was so lowered that like if you like bought a Chumbawamba CD online or something, like yeah. suddenly, suddenly like the government was allowed to like go through all your mail, you know? There, yeah, there <laughs> My was... brother might be on one because his name is Raheem. Oh, he's definitely on <laughs> one. Oh yeah, well remember Cat Stevens was put on a no fly list on no, on a no fly list because his name was Yusuf Islam at the time. <laughs> yeah. There was, I mean, there was that case of a sheriff's department infiltrating like this sweet group of like anti-war boomers. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, like, tons of stuff like that. Just psychotic shit. I, I mean, I probably was too young unless they like uh, put everyone who played CS 1.6 on a list, which they might have. <laughs> they could uh, have, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could have, they did dumber things during the time, but uh I think I yeah probably I don't know. Um I've never I uh I've always gotten patted down at the airport but may, I mm. think that's just me misunderstanding social cues more than anything. <laughs> Is it a actual security official patting you down or just a a random citizen cuz Just a good, just <laughs> a guy. Okay. Been the same guy since 2010. <laughs> really fucking weird. See, the feds never tell you though, so it still could be them. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably an undercover. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we live with so much of this. It's totally normalized. It's actually surprising in the conversation about the security at the Capitol. People are like, why isn't this like when I go to the airport? Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that is that is another thing. I mean, the Bush family, no one has ever made out like them. They mm-hmm. yeah. they got everything they ever wanted. And yeah, what you just said, why isn't this like I when I go to the airport? Why is it like that when you go to the airport? Right. Yeah. That's yeah, that's the thing. It set this new standard, not just for like personal tolerance for security theater and all this shit, but also like the level, uh, the level of respect and adoration that like your average Democrat has for someone in the CIA now is insane. And that is a direct consequence of the war on terror. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, you know, in some ways the people that were sort of fretting about Fox news at the time were very right because the fact that they made that into a culture war issue. That was the greatest thing that could ever have happened to the CIA or the national security state. You're telling me like this agency that everyone distrusts this thing that everyone hates, like look at the films made in the seventies. Look how, you know, reporters who people found out work with the CIA, looked how they look, how they were treated in the seventies, go through Iran Contra, go through all this. Americans broadly distrust it, broadly distrust the idea of like jackbooted thugs killing children at ruby ridge and then you can do you can do this thing where it's like oh yeah you're an annoying pussy who drinks like a gay type of coffee if you don't like this and it it caused like it caused democrats to go like no like democrats who already supported this who already you know increased the funding of the national security state every year to go no 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 i actually love this i love this i love this but we uh I love it in a, a pluralistic, nice way, and you love it in a bad way. And right. it moved everyone so far to the right now that it's, I, I mean, unfortunately, um, those over a quarter of 18 to 29-year-olds who support QAnon, they may be <laughs> the most mainstream, like, anti-NATSEC state, anti-CIA force, and it's only because- They're the they only people who hate the deep state. yeah. But it's only because I mean, they especially think they, after this last week, right? Yeah. right. There's heaps of praise. You know, James Comey's back in the mix. Um, they had, I think, like six or seven former CIA operators being like commenting about the coup. I think on MSNBC. Is James um, Comey really back in the mix? I mi- I missed him. Yeah, he was oh. on my phone earlier on CNN. Right. When I was doing sound check with Kayla, and I was like, "Why is James Comey?" <laughs> <laughs> By the way, when I say I missed him, it's not that I wanted him to return. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I didn't see that he had. All of these these figures have kind of been rehabilitated. I mean, it's not just Bush. And I think mm-hmm. you're exactly right about, you know, the kind of you you now have the FBI being like, give us tips to identify these people. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what they'll do with those. I don't think it's necessarily the fault of the the people giving the tips, right? Um, it's the way the states positioned this like massive expansion of executive power that also happened under Obama and also happened under Trump. And now that people are worried about what Trump does with it, they're like, we need another source of power to, to beat that back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that 
like process of rehabilitation a little bit because um, Felix, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because, you know, there is basically a collective national amnesia on so many levels about the Bush years. And I know that you've talked about this or like commented on this before. And for me, it kind of takes two forms. So one is this rehabilitation that you mentioned, Ariella, where suddenly liberals uh, love Bush because he, you know, stood up against Trump like he was the last decent Republican and president. He he's the bulwark against populism, apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, decent. He like paints pictures of animals. He, you know, uh, like sends Christmas cards, so on and so forth. So there's that. Um, yes, here's one that he sent this year, which apparently was some sort of like massive own of Trump. Um, according to the liberal commentariat. Um, I don't know. This is one of his paintings. It's nice. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, so there's that angle. Um, but then I think the, the amnesia also manifests in something that we sort of talked about earlier, which is that all of this rhetoric, all of these complaints that were sort of leveled against Bush during his term are actually really similar to what we hear uh, being said about Trump during his term, right? So like yes. he was the worst president of all time. Like this is a huge desecration of the constitution. He's so dumb, he can't speak. Um, this is like, things have really gone too far this time, you know? And that, as we know, didn't work to oust Bush from office. So. I'm just curious, like, why do people think or why did people think it was going to work this time? I mean, like, surely some people must have been alive during the Bush administration. Like, not everybody is under 30, right? <laughs> Wrong. Right. <laughs> hate to break it to you. <laughs> I mean... The weird thing to me is that it it did work. I mean, I guess it's a victory for liberal accelerationists. That you can, if you have a president, if you have someone do such a shitty job that you can elect somebody as bad as Joe Biden. <laughs> yes, that's like, <laughs> the, the contradictions will, will be so bold that we'll have to elect the uh, a guy who gives the shittiest speech ever every time he speaks. But... Uh, <laughs> Do you guys remember during the Bush years, there was all of this rhetoric that some like sane Republican, some moderate Republican would stand up to all of his bullshit. And and the person that Democrats identified was Colin Powell, of mm -hmm. all people. Um, Kale, I think we have a picture of Colin Powell holding up a yeah. fake vial of anthrax at the U.N. when he's trying to convince the U.N. that the U.S. needs to go to war immediately. I mean, this is the guy who was supposed to put an end to, like, Bush's reign of terror. I, I think that's hilarious. Yeah, no, I mean, a guy who should He's be He's not a Republican anymore, by the way. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I saw that, yeah. I am reminded of uh, one of the, like, best-slash-worst uh, Fox News headlines. It was from 2008. Colin Powell was on stage at like a Black Eyed Peas concert or some shit, like whatever like rap concert Colin Powell would go Where to. Where is the love? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and the headline on the Fox News website was um, Powell at rap concert uh, spurs rumors that he may endorse Obama, which is like one <laughs> of the fucking like, dear lord. Two thousand eight was a very different time, but. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. but Ariella, like you said, like Colin Powell's back in the news again because he says he's no longer Republican, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I or, so I guess Felix to your point, like maybe it did work after all. Well, He'll yeah. endorse Obama now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he did vote for Obama if I recall right, but he uh 
I, yeah, I mean, it, it did work just because, I mean, people's lives were so dramatically shittier now, I think. I mean, like Biden won by a very big raw vote total, but not really the margin that Obama won by in right. 08, which was also a case of a Democrat winning because, you know, people's lives had gotten so fucking awful. Mm-hmm. Um but detailed in our earlier segments if anyone's just joining us <laughs> i i really think though if um you know covid doesn't happen i think uh probably trump wins um but yeah no that it is surprising to me that they brought out a lot of the same bush playbook mm-hmm. the begging for sane republicans and you know things like that i mean there were more sane republicans during bush but they all got wiped out in 2008 those are always the first to go mm-hmm. those are always mm-hmm. the, the sane ones of every party are always the first to get fucking wiped out in a wave year they're the weakest links mm-hmm. like the, yeah. there was there was some, like you know some chris something i i even history forgets his name too but uh he was the last one of the last republicans uh of the northeast and he you know he did everything that democrats wanted uh as far as like coming out against the the war being sensible and tax cuts and all this shit and it's like yeah he got fucking wiped out mm-hmm. like people either want a democrat or a republican not some you can't please everybody except for i mean joe lieberman you know he's the only one yeah he's the only one i guess it's just his firecracker charisma right yeah (laughs) droopy dog yeah charisma um all right who do you think will be the next uh u.s villain to get redeemed they seem to be lining up taking advantage of this bush moment yeah they're all they're all i mean sorry trump moment freudian slip yeah It's hard to do worse than John Brennan, isn't it? I mean, just as far as, like, complete pieces of shit that should be in prison. Uh, You know, uh, things I can't say for, you know, the purposes. I I don't want to get sued. Uh, I won't accuse him of. But of the things he's admitted to, just awful, should be in fucking prison. That is is somebody who, like, yeah, obviously seeing David Frum's... uh, David Frum's face makes me sick. Seeing all these people up there makes me sick. But John Brennan, especially, just, I mean, it's hard to think of anyone worse than him. I don't know. Doug Fife would be a weird one to me, I think. If they, if Doug Fife was like, I mean, he probably voted for Trump. All these guys did. Like John mm-hmm. Yu, John Yu was giving Trump legal advice on how to overturn the election. But I guess if there was some like Team B mollusk, like uh wolfowitz or fife that was brought out and like praised it would surprise me a little bit because at least with john brennan you know the liberals who are now hypnotized by the natsec cult can go he protected our country and he's you know fucking Mm -hmm. against trump but uh you know for someone like doug fife who's just (laughs) done nothing but write policy papers on how to yeah turn the war into a culture war issue that would surprise me a little bit. And because he's such a, you know, he's such a background player. He's a, he's a character actor. Yeah. In the, in the grand show. Yeah. If this were a Sorkin show, he'd be a guest character is mm-hmm. what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> I mean, um, who do you think is 
going to be rehabilitated. Because I think that like the majority of people, you know, from the Bush years, like the Republicans and the people in his cabinet are are probably just going to slink away quietly. Right. Like David Frum has writing gigs, but like. I'm thinking about somebody like John Ashcroft, who like was in a Senate mm-hmm. barbershop quartet and like yes. I think now runs a think tank or I don't even think it's a think tank. I think it's like a family foundation. Um, but anyway, like, again, he was the architect of the Patriot Act and should like probably be tried at The Hague for his role in the Iraq war. Um, and he's just like living a life now, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I don't know. Like, do you think do you think other people are going to be elevated? Well, I think that you have to if you're going to turn on turn the wheels of the PR machine, then you have to have some like something at stake. And Mm -hmm. like, you know, John Ashcroft doesn't probably want to get back in the game in any like explicit or visible way. I'm sure he's happy, you know, doing whatever it is he's doing behind the scenes now. So I think Bush's like redemption is part because, you know, politicians are always in the public eye. I mean, presidents are always in the public eye. There's there's not really a a space for him to to leave, and so I think he's um, doing this one for his own legacy, but I think too as part of a concerted Republican realignment that he ushered in the de-alignment of, if, if that makes sense, right? You saw the Tea Party emerge after him. You saw. Um, right-wing violence emerge. You saw standoffs where, you know, like the Bundys taking federal land for their cattle. Obviously, there are like some real economic and political issues that underpin people's participation and things like that. But I think that was really a kind of preview of the way that Republicans engaged with their constituents and a lot of them made concessions to it. And you saw Tea Partiers, Tea Party candidates ousting um, well-established Republicans And he like laid low through that, probably to see which way the wind went. And then when it seemed like there was enough of a push against Trump and a need for this, um, you know, good old fashioned Republican (laughs) resurgence, he came back in the game. Cheney did to a certain extent. Colin Powell now is like these calls for unity. We have to have civility, et cetera, et cetera. When I don't think Bush had any civility whatsoever for the black uh, population of New Orleans or for Muslim people who were being targeted mm-hmm. by domestic terrorists. Right. So, I mean, on yeah. that point, so I remember, you know, I, you, during Trump's, um, during Trump's term, you know, uh, when he sort of enacted the Muslim travel ban, I remember a lot of people were actually contrasting him with Bush and being like, hey, after 9-11, like Bush, Bush was actually like really civil and talked about how we shouldn't turn on Arab and Muslim Americans. And it's like, okay, like, I guess he did say that. But then he also like began a regime of racial profiling and like detaining them without due process. So I... Mm -hmm. It's hard to say. And it's the same with Trump, though. You could say, oh, Trump's a racist. And then you could roll a clip of him bailing out a black grandma and getting her out of jail for like, you know, a petty crime and and or helping out a black small business owner. Mm -hmm. These things are super dangerous. The way that the culture war draws its lines Mm -hmm. is always a political. I think like Bush's legacy shows us that it's just a. It's it's kind of like the spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down of whatever the political push is. Mm-hmm. Well, that is, I mean, 
it's why the specific line of argument that, you know, ex-Republican president or ex-president is a specific evil is such a bad road to go down. Because one thing you can always depend on, there's always going to be a worse guy. (laughs) And that guy that you said was the most evil in the world, like, suddenly you're like, I mean, holy shit. Like, if I just sort of vaguely paid attention to politics from, like, 06 to 08 and then came back like you know no wonder so many people don't participate in the political process yeah this guy was the most evil fucking person in the world total aberration and aberration even in his party and now you're praising him as an example of a good leader Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's like yeah no that's i don't care how bad someone is unless it's no it just doesn't work politically because there's always going to be a shittier guy and then that guy that you said, you know, 10 years ago was the worst, the, you know, the, the cancer in his own party, just, you know, cut off the head, the body will die, everything will be normal after him. Suddenly you're holding him up as a standard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his vision of international politics won. Yeah. When I hear Joe Biden, like, talk about, like, restoring American leadership and 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 these it just there's no those debates were so insane because it was like just two people listing their two their crackpot ideas for uh potential nuclear conflicts for <laughs> like for like the, what border clashes they think are good ideas mm-hmm. yeah Kale, can we read a clip actually on that note um because i think it's really important for the left to not like there's a lot uh there's a lot to make fun of about the personality traits and behaviors of politicians right and like that's mm-hmm. really fun to do but that's not political and and it's good for us to narrow in on what is wrong with these policies it wasn't that george bush was bad because he was stupid and he said nuclear and he cleared brush or he um, was a reformed cocaine addict. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or read books upside down. It was that his policies ruined the lives of hundreds of millions of people, destabilized the global economy, destabilized the entire Middle East, um, literally killed millions of people there. That's that's where our focus should be. And I think like one of the things that we saw come out of the liberal anti-Bush media establishment was this like he's dumb. You know, they gestured towards what was wrong with his policies, but there was no um, counter argument. Although you do see that from Bernie, like he's holding it down every single time being like the top one percent. He does. He does say here is what we should do. In fact, um in the clip that I had about um, No Child Left Behind, she goes on to say, if you want to improve schooling, you need to end poverty in America. Mm-hmm. Those are the ways that we have to focus rather than kind of indulging in the like personality war. But I want to sh- run this clip because I think it shows the way that Bush exploited this to rehabilitate himself by positioning his um, civility and bipartisanship that he now has as a kind of stand-in for an economic vision um, against isolationism. And he kind of equates Bernie and Trump um, in this clip. So I wanted to run it. Bigotry seems emboldened. Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories 
and outright fabrication. There are some signs that the intensity of support for democracy itself has waned, especially among the young, who never experienced the galvanizing moral clarity of the Cold War, or never focused on the ruin of entire nations by socialist central planning. Some have called this democratic deconsolidation. Really, it seems to be a combination of weariness, frayed tempers, and forgetfulness. Yeah, forgetfulness is really bad. I don't know, has anybody (laughs) forgotten anything about him? Like, he was a war criminal or... (laughs) (laughs) All the liberals, apparently. (laughs) I, 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 that clip is interesting because, I mean, first of all, that's the real Bush. Yeah. That's him talking he can to talk. Yeah, talking to a room full of neoconservative Draculas. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> but uh it did make me think, you know, this is you know, the other reason why personality based uh attacks don't work. Somebody's a politician, their outward personality is that's what they want you to see, a successful one at least. And it's like yeah, Bush wants you to call him like a dumb hick because that clip, that's what he is. Yeah. What he actually is, he wants you to think he's, yeah, like plays in a country bear jamboree band with mm-hmm. like bears that wear overalls. But in actuality, <laughs> yeah, he's deep state royalty. His dad killed JFK. He's completely like bloodless piece of shit. Same with Trump. Like Trump mm-hmm. wants you to wants you to call him like rude and insane and dangerous yeah like that and people take the bait every time mm-hmm. yep and it's the same way that the kind of broader culture war where they're roping in these issues about you know families are degrading we need to encourage marriage home ownership get back to these conservative values or you know the kind of democratic model which has switched into a sort of like mm, <laughs> slightly less defanged boutique multiculturalism. <laughs> These are mm-hmm. cover stories for yeah. policies that when you look at them continuously are pretty similar. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of departure here. Mm-hmm. You know, they may say like Obama did that it's in the name of bipartisanship and and that was a, a big part of his platform and he had to do it. But Really, all of this, just like the veneer of personality is the scapegoat for the politician and the political actor and their team of strategists, because they're really not like a single person. They're like a festering multiplicity of parasitic bodies. Those people have, you know, the politician veneer. And then the party has the cultural veneer. We're the we're the party of, you know, the guy driving the truck, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they both fail every time. And insofar as the veneer appeals to normal people, you do see like record numbers of disengagement with the political process every single time because nothing's really changing and people don't like mm-hmm. feeling tricked mm-hmm. They and they're desperate and they need some real reforms. Ariella, right after your segment, uh, when you mentioned the housing crash, I also wanted to mention that Bill Clinton, again, was the one who got the ball rolling on financial deregulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes, the housing crash, um, that was that was like a Bush era product. But um, again, it was just part of a continuum that was becoming- From like yeah, there, yeah, yeah. And I want to be clear, like, I, I'm not trying to say that there's just no difference whatsoever between Democrats and Republicans, although I know some people do argue that and there's a lot of evidence in their favor. I mean, Bush did do things like, um, 
like he, you know, rammed through the partial birth abortion ban, um, which, you know, is this kind of draconian measure curtailing reproductive rights. Uh, and I don't think that a Democrat would have done that. So there are things here and there. And, you know, they're they're not always they're not always insignificant. Right. Mm-hmm. But on certain planks, especially on economics, uh, you do see this continuing, you know, line. Um, and like you said, like that, I think, gets kind of eclipsed. So. I mean, Carter started the ball rolling on a lot of deregulation. True, he regulated <laughs> yeah. a lot of a lot of key industries. He, like, not so famously deregulated the credit industry in a massive mm-hmm. way. Um, no, yeah, this is, you know, I've I've heard it argued. Uh, I don't know if this you can say this all the way because it's not true of everything, but that it's just sort of been on a downward slide since 1968. And not really improved. And I think with, you know, there's some things that have gotten better, but uh, I just think as far as like what the floor is for economic policy, that is true. Mm -hmm. And for what the the floor is for imperial policy, that Mm -hmm. is true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at least since, since 68, if not, you know, a little before um, economic inequality has been just on a constant, like upward trajectory Uh, wages. And that's, kind of also the point at which wages become uncoupled from productivity. Uh, and, you know, you see people working longer and harder, uh, but their wages stagnant. So, yeah, there are a lot of ways in which things have only gotten worse, I think. Like Bob yeah. Dylan. <laughs> right. <Just kidding. laughs> Can't well, say I'm, that. Sorry. I, w- I won't even say my opinions on him then. If that's true. He's fine. He's fine. No more personal attacks, right, guys? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, okay, so we're at uh, we're we're basically coming up on an hour, so I think we should kind of wind things down. But I I think what I want to end on is asking you guys. Um, who was worse, Bush or Trump? <laughs> because that's kind of the question the question of the hour, right? <laughs> uh, this is uh. I would, I would, uh, normally I would throw to Ariel first, but this is, um, <laughs> this is a, this is a, a loaded, this is, could be a loaded question. So I'll, I'll do the courtesy Thanks. of taking it first. Uh, there are probably 10 to 20 things that people are mad at, mad at me for already. So, uh, <laughs> Just take another. <laughs> I would, I would have to say that Bush is worst, worse, uh, just on the virtue of the fact that I do not think that we have a Trump without a Bush. Mm, yeah. I think it's, yeah. Chicken and egg thing. Uh, and I don't know. I just, as bad as Trump is, as awful as his economic policies have been, uh, you know, he's greatly increased the amount of civilians killed in uh, drone attacks, which is already calamitously high. Mm-hmm. Uh I even his handling of COVID. I mean, I just don't see that as being quite as bad for the world as uh, Iraq was. I mean, with COVID, he absolutely fucked it up. There's no question. But I, I think that no American president, save for if we got like a Tito or somebody, would have scored under 150,000 dead. We're this as he's awful obviously and did the worst job he could have done 
But this country was so perfectly positioned to get fucking railed by mm -hmm. COVID and lose mm -hmm. just hundreds of thousands of people. Um, yeah, just in the actual act of administration, he's mm -hmm. terrible at it. He's pretty much bad at everything. But, uh, you know, the small things he did, like going to North Korea and like <laughs> shaking hands with Kim Jong-il, like I can't think of anything similar with Bush where I can go, oh, that was, I guess one thing, and it, it Bush did send a lot of, uh, did spend a comparatively high amount of money on uh, fighting AIDS in Africa. Although tied to um, yeah, abstinence only. Sex only yeah. 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 So but yeah, I, he did. And he, he actually um, kind of improved some um, immigration prospects for refugees coming from certain countries that um, could claim that they were being religiously persecuted. A lot of yeah, his right, like right. Christians, right? Yeah. Yeah. His international policy was like largely directed at these religious kind of issues or religious foundations. Um, yeah. I get, yeah, I guess like any president you're just going to find mostly bad and then like one or two personal projects that were like, okay, or good. But I just, I think Bush is creating like you can, as much as Trump fucks up, as much as he purposely, you know, harms people or just, you know, doesn't know how to do something or doesn't give a shit, it doesn't happen without Bush. So mm -hmm. I'm always going to have to yeah. say Bush. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, Bush is a better painter. We can say that <laughs> yeah. definitively. Well, I mean, so have we really seen Trump's art yet? I mean, it might be too soon to say. That would, be, just... that would be amazing if he was, like, actually great at it. Yeah, just no one believed him because it's like, oh, what? Yeah, like you said, you were the best baseball player in New York. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, no, he's actually, like, really good. <laughs> incredibly talented yeah, yeah. with form space yeah, yeah. <laughs> just for some reason he's amazing <laughs> look look out for it next year <laughs> yeah we'll we'll keep our our eyes on that redemption arc for him and who knows what melania's will be i'm excited i mean she's already done some amazing pieces her i loved her christmas designs yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah here getting back to you know the serious the the gravity of the holiday from right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> tree it was a very eastern european interpretation of christmas <laughs> yeah and we have to be tolerant of all cultures and all of all forms of cultural expression so the the liberals really shouldn't have jumped on that mm. yeah <laughs> um yeah jen i'm sorry i copped out there with the with answering that question yeah. but no it's 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 hard right like i mean felix i think like I think what you said, I I I'm inclined to agree. Like yeah, I do just, think just on a... the point that there is no Trump without Bush. I mean that's yeah. that's totally true. I think that's you know that's a really good point. Um, and just going back to some of the themes we were discussing earlier, like Bush and Trump. Okay, so like for example, Trump. You know, Trump is. People, people always talk about Trump as having kind of emboldened like a new wave of white supremacy or like white nationalists. And I think that is true to a certain extent. But when you go back to Bush, you know, even though he didn't like verbally or rhetorically court white supremacists, 
you know, when he sort of launched the war in Afghanistan, one of the things that he did was lower the requirements to entering the military because he didn't want to do a draft and no one was really signing up. So what he did was he basically was like, well, we'll start letting in people who we didn't really want to let in before. So that included neo-Nazis, like people Mm -hmm. with Nazi tattoos, uh, people with, you know, mental illnesses, um, I guess like people who were, you know, physically unfit. um, Although that in retrospect, was like a much less serious problem. Um, But he basically created a cohort of white nationalists who had military training. And I don't know if you guys remember in like 2011 or like 2012, one of them shot up a Sikh temple in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So I I, I mean, I, you know, because of the belief founded by him that there was that there were cell terrorist cells in the United States, that regular civilians had to be vigilant constantly. Right. I mean, do you remember in New York, all the see something, say something posters like that is not um, (laughs) that's not not responsible for uh, empowering regular Americans to think that it's their job to arm themselves and protect the streets. Right. Right. There was, there was a constant environment of fear and suspicion and hatred of Muslims, no matter how many times he appeared in a mosque or no matter what he said, it doesn't change what he's doing. Yeah. You know, that. And a big group of people were like, he has to do that. But what he really wants is, us to arm ourselves, us to protect our country. Like, you know, that kind of rhetoric. And, you know, that's also not new for Bush. Mm-hmm. I think any kind of warmongering administration has to drum up that sort of popular fervor and kind of like rapacious desire to, and fear. But what he did that was new was armed the police, um, encouraged people. I, I remember like seeing, um, news pieces on people training to like join into the army. Like we have to be ready, Mm -hmm. Um, which was just like regular, I guess you'd call them militia groups. Um, But like, you know, civilian groups who were like, we're going to prevent another attack. Um, All of that was tolerated and encouraged. Mm -hmm. Right. When you tell, when you tell people it's a good thing to drop everything and join the Marines because you want to kill Muslims, that that's fundamentally a good thing. You know, what is that? But emboldening white supremacy and you know what like i'm sorry but what is emboldening white supremacists or a cohort of white supremacists supremacists or uh violent extremist elements than the greatest one-time growth of the national security state which he is responsible for yeah yeah yep all right so it's settled (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, you know we're, we're not we're not outside of that legacy now. Trump didn't invent right. those things. And it's interesting to me that so many Trump supporters actually became disillusioned with Bush and then, you know, participated in the riots at the Capitol. And, and one of those people was the woman that was shot and killed there. And right. you can see a direct line between our interventions in Iraq, the rhetoric around them, the, you know, media on both sides showing us bombing Baghdad Um the constant paranoia, like trust no one, report everything, call in on your neighbors, foreigners are bad. Like, what do people think imparted a greater hatred of Muslims and a greater lack, a, a greater lack of accounting for their lives as being worth anything? 
Is it, you know, the awful things that Trump says and, and, and does a lot of the time, or is it killing a million Iraqis and then it's just fine. Nothing happens. No, and you Trump can't was, even be mad at yeah, him. He was capitalizing on the anti-Muslim sentiment that Bush fomented. Yes. He wasn't just saying, here's another cool group of people to hate out of nowhere. Right. He was looking at the base that he courted and looking at the beliefs that they already held. And they held those beliefs because of the rhetoric coming out of the Bush administration. And Bush was friends with the people who actually did 9-11. <laughs> right. Last question. Yeah. Did Bush do 9-11? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> that, that was kind of a, like a watershed moment when I feel like the fringe left and the fringe right kind of came together to say that Bush did 9-11. Like there are a few conspiracy theories that both sides of the political spectrum agree on. That's one of them. Uh, the government uh, putting fluoride in the water to brainwash all of us is another one. I feel like anti-vax is kind of another one. <laughs> yeah, I... um. I don't I, I spiritually agree with Bush in 9/11 even if I don't think it's literally I don't know. I there's a lot we don't know on it. I will say that. I don't I'm not I'm not going to say it's thermite paint or any of that shit, but it is like well, you know, if they if they knew it was coming, let it happen. Would that surprise you? Yeah. It wouldn't be the first time that something like that has happened. But I mean, again, we won't know for, for another 50 years for sure. You can trust Dick Cheney. Years. He shot his friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And um, made him Miss Cheney, now part of the resistance also. Mm-hmm. So very doable. Yeah. yeah. If there's ever been a greater argument for uh, generational imprisonment. <laughs> if you can't get like the estate tax to be illegal maybe we should, should try for generational <laughs> 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 um yeah i mean okay uh, <laughs> on that note uh thank you very much felix for being My here pleasure. uh talking about the bush years always a pleasure um My and pleasure. Yeah, yeah so we'll, thank you. It was a great discussion. I feel like we have a million episodes we can do on this. Maybe we'll have you back for another one, but probably not about Bush. <laughs> no, uh, whatever you guys want. I uh, thank you guys for having me so much. I had a great time. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, any continued. Any any. If you want to talk about talking points, memo from the years two thousand five to seven. I could also talk about that. Next show. <laughs> that will redeem you, actually, in the public eye. Our, our commenters turned on you, and you've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, no. I'm all, I'm, I'm, I got to dig myself out of the hole here. Get out that paint set. I, I, I've hired David Axelrod. <laughs> You're good, then. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, thank you again. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you, guys. And, uh, yeah, talk to everyone soon, hopefully. Good night, Felix. Bye. Well, um, again, there that is barely the tip of the iceberg on the Bush years. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation with Felix, though. Uh, he, I think, was the perfect guest to have on to kind of decompress about uh, 2001 to 2008. Um, Slash also whatever is happening now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess that is kind of the constant theme, right? Like there mm-hmm. is so much continuity between or, uh, uh, you know, from what came before through Bush through to now. Um, yeah. And I think I think that's what I want the takeaway to be kind of like, uh, l- you know, like we discussed with Felix, there's so much inflated rhetoric about like Bush being the worst president of his time, then Trump mm-hmm. being the worst president of our time. Um, but perhaps what is most significant is kind of these points of connection. Yeah, 
and seeing the way that, um, you know, there's an expansion of austerity and expansion of executive power. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's a continuity with both foreign and domestic policy. And that's what we have to go after. That's what mm-hmm. we have to attack. Mm-hmm. Because in the one commonality there is that the vast majority of people suffer quite a bit yeah. and yeah. die. And uh, the the layer of elites goes untouched. And we'll see if that applies to Trump this time around. So in conclusion, go watch that eight-hour Bernie filibuster. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, any last thoughts on the Bush years before we wrap up? Ooh, too many last thoughts on the Bush years. Um, yeah, I think it's just a, a good point to look at the way that Bush laid the groundwork for both the personality cult of Trump, the kind of racism, the um, the the scapegoating of specific right. groups of people which is also nothing new for Bush either. But I think that the the particular personality type and that play on that and and being like, well, he's a stupid idiot. You know, a lot of people say Bush wasn't in control of his administration. Cheney was running it. Right. Um, yeah. and, and it's a very common sentiment like, oh, Bush yeah. is just a dumb puppet and it's his yeah. cabinet and, and Cheney who are like pulling the strings. And um, with Trump, it's like, Trump doesn't know what he's doing. Right. Imagine if we get a competent version. Some mm-hmm. people that he had were competent. Um, yeah. And and same with Bush. Bush is obviously a very competent politician. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, uh, let's wrap up. So thank you to everybody who watched the hour and a half of the <laughs> W special. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. Thanks. And good night, everyone. Good night, guys.